0: Take your Bibles to James chapter 2 tonight, James chapter 2. That song right there is one of my favorite songs of all time, I'm telling you. Uh, The other night I heard them practicing that song and I came up to them and I said, have y'all been checking my computer uh, browse history? I was researching to to get that soundtrack, to sing that song in church. uh, Man, that's a good song. There's so much theology in that. Uh, Just when you think of in the Old Testament how they had to sacrifice animals all the time and the blood had to be applied to the mercy seat. I want you to understand, just because we live in the New Testament, that had to be accomplished as well. God is a holy, just God and He's righteous. And so what Christ did was He took the blood that He shed on Calvary, went to heaven, literally ascended up into heaven. That's why He said, don't touch me yet because I've not yet ascended up into my Father And he was saying, I've not applied the blood to the mercy seat. Man, the theology behind that is phenomenal. The fact that Christ once and for all died for all mankind, and he literally took the blood that he shed and placed it on the mercy seat for yours and my sins. That's an amazing song. That's an amazing thought. James chapter 2 tonight. uh, We'll start reading in verse uh, verse number 1. The Bible says, My brethren... Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring, in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor man, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool, Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren. Hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which He hath promised to them that love Him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do they not blaspheme that worthy name by by the which ye are called?' If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if you have respect to persons you commit sin, are convinced of the law as transgressors. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray tonight that you would just help us in this very short time. I pray that you would give me wisdom. I pray that you would uh, keep my tongue from going places, it not ought go. I pray that I would... Uh, be led of your spirit. I pray that you would help me. And Lord, just please give me discretion. And Lord, I pray that your word would be very powerful. Uh, And I pray that you would divide the the thoughts and the intents of the heart tonight with your word. And I pray all this in your son's precious name. Amen. Now, yesterday, Cody called me at about 645. Cody, my friend over here. And he said, hey, Andrew, you want to go play basketball up at the brick? Many of you may not know where the brick is, but that's that really nice recreation center. Uh, just behind, I guess, Blockbuster right over here, you know, Captain D's. Those are my, Blockbuster and Captain D's, those are my landmarks for the brick. You just turn left there, you go down to the old ball fields. I said, sure, Cody, we'll go down there. And, And so we get there, and there's probably, I don't know, 30, 40 guys in there playing basketball. And they have one end that the older guys kind of play on, the better basketball players. And so me and Cody go as far away from there as we possibly can. And no, uh, we, we were waiting to get into a game and we had called dibs on the next game. And we went down and played with like junior high kids, very young kids. And so we were just shooting around down there. And, and I remember they, they just said, all right, let's get a game together. And so me and Cody and Colby Chapel were all there. And so we were just waiting on our turn to play at the other end. So we said, OK, that's fine. And so then these junior high kids began to pick teams. And I don't know why, but people always pick Cody over me. Everyone knows I'm more athletic than Cody, right? Don't y'all? Everyone knows I'm better looking, I'm stronger, I'm better. Bat- why do people pick Cody over me? I've not figured it out yet. No, Cody, Cody's a huge mammoth of a man. That's why they pick him over me. He's weirdly tall, you know? He's six foot four and I'm only six foot two, which apparently is a big difference in junior high kids' minds. And and I remember yesterday, yesterday they're like, the first pick of the of the deal, this one kid, I don't know what he was doing. The first pick of the deal is like, I'll take my friend over here, he's five foot three. <laughs> well, you're a moron, son. <laughs> Cody's standing over six foot four, and this one little kid, he was the second captain, he said, I'll take the tall guy. <laughs> and so uh and so uh, then that other kid, I really don't know what type of team he was picking. And then he was like, "I'll take my other friend who's four foot three. <laughs> I don't. And then the other kid was like, "All right, I'll pick, I'll pick this guy, six foot two, You know. So now we have like the giants versus the little kids, and it was not a very pretty game. But it's funny when when things come down to you know when you're selecting your team, you always want the best guy. And, and even though those kids had no idea that I was a much, extremely more talented athlete than Cody ever thought about being. Even though that was the case. No, they they picked Cody because they saw a guy and they were like, that's the guy I want. He's tall, he's strong, he he can shoot. That's the guy I want. You know, as I read through the Bible and and I, I look at who the Lord chose to minister to as he was on this earth. I wonder if it would resemble the team that we would pick if we were picking members for this church. I wonder if we go out into our community, and I'm so excited about the B1 of 200. That's going to be an awesome day. You do not want to miss that. Be a part of that. But as I'm excited about that, and as we go out into the community, I'm wondering if we knock on someone's door, and they come to the door, and they look a little bit different than somebody we would welcome with open arms. I wonder if that's the person we would pick to shake hands with at the front of our church when they become a member. You see, the Bible's very clear. We are not to have respect of persons. We are not to uh, value someone on their outward appearance and who they are of what they've accomplished. We're supposed to value them through the eye of the love of God. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. I'm excited about this new building project. Man, as dirt clods are starting to be moved. We're starting to rip up concrete. We're starting to... Really, really go forward. As far as I understand, there is nothing holding us back but time now. We're just going, man. I'm excited about that. And with building, I believe comes growth. People will be interested as they drive by our church and they see new wings, expansions going up. They see the steel erected and they see walls being built. They're going to say, what's going on there? I want to be a part of that. We just got to go see. I'm thankful for that. But tonight I just want to take a moment to make sure that our priorities would match the priorities of our lords and who walks in these doors and how we treat them when they walk in. We're going to look at three things tonight. First of all, right here in James chapter 2, how are we supposed to view a person? We are supposed to see the inner man and not the outer man. We are to look on the inner man and not the outer man. Verse 2, this is what the Bible says. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring, in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in this good place, in our comfy pew, sit here, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. See, these verses are talking about Men that walk into the church. And what James does is he, he gives them an example of somebody who's going to walk into their church. And he says, here's one man, a rich man. He's got nice clothes on. He comes in his suit. He's got rings on. He's got uh, expensive garments. And, and you look at him and you say, now that's the kind of man that I want as a member of this church. And he says, that's okay, that's okay. But if there's a man come in that's not in his suit. And there's a man that comes in not with jewelry on. And he says, if that man comes in and you treat him any differently, you have failed to do what the faith that God has given you has called you to do. The whole emphasis of, it on, of this passage is, if you receive the faith of Christ, don't treat people differently. You see, the faith of Christ, when it dealt with us, did not regard who we used to be. You see, I was saved at a younger age. I probably didn't get as deep into some things as other people got. And I'm thankful that the Lord saved me. And it took the same amount of blood to save me as it took any other person. But I want you to see that people may walk into this building who have hard pasts. Who have a lot of skeletons in their closet. And we're supposed to welcome those people. It is supposed to be just as strong of a handshake and a hearty greeting with that man as it is the millionaire that we all know, the philanthropist that walks through the back door and we say, now there's a man who can help us finish this building. As we look at that man and we look at the other man with the skeletons, they ought to be treated the same as they walk into this building. James here deals with these churches and In the first chapter, he talks about how you're know you supposed to handle tribulations and temptations. And he's very clear. He's like, oh, don't think it's some weird thing, but handle them. God's testing you. He's giving you something. That's what he talks about. But then the very last verse as he goes on, look at verse number uh, 27 of chapter 1. The Bible says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless. And the widows in their affliction. You see, a lot of churches, especially, and I want to be careful here, but especially of our stripe. The fundamental Baptist movement, the independent, the hard-nosed Christians, we have that ear tag about us. The paradigm of our movement in this world is that we are the conservative of the conservatives. We are as far right-wing as right-wing can be. Let me just tell you, I just believe, uh, the person I am, I just believe that's how God wants me to be. I don't consider myself right-wing, I consider myself right in the will of God. But see, a lot of people view us as hard-nosed, callous even. And that's not how we ought to be. But the reason James was writing this is because the people had become that. They say, my friend, pure religion is not you going to church. Pure religion is not you doing good things all week. Pure religion is loving people in their affliction. You see, our church is called to help the hurting. To care for those in crisis. To talk to those who are in trouble. We are supposed to love people who need to be loved. When I first met Amy... You know, you're getting to know people, uh, you're getting to know each other, and it's kind of a cool time. And, and back then, you know, we'd stay on the phone all night long. You know, 3 o'clock in the morning, we're still on the phone. And, and now at 3 o'clock in the morning, if she touches me, I just punch her right in the face, you know. <laughs> 3 o'clock in the morning is much different now than it was when we were in puppy love, you know. I tell people the reason that we got a king-sized bed is because I don't want to touch my wife when I sleep. <laughs> Right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. If she kicks me in the middle of the night and wakes me up, I don't need her doing that. That's what I have an alarm clock for. It wakes me up. I don't need my wife waking me up. But uh, it's funny how when you're first getting to know a person, you you learn all these different things about them. And some of you may not know, I have a fairly large scar right here on my arm. And I have kind of like four of them right here. And and they've kind of healed up over time. They used to be much, much, much worse. And uh, I remember Amy, was. we were talking one night, and I'd worn a polo, and she could see that scar. And she said, what happened there? And I said, well, I got into a gang fight. (laughs) And I said, "I, I had a chain, and the other guy had a knife. And he got one good one in on me. And she's just sitting there like, what have I gotten myself into? You know, she's just freaking out. And I'm loving telling her this lie. It's hilarious. She's, she's like, oh no, I've married this guy with all these terrible pasts. And I was like, actually, what really happened was one day a cat fell from a tree and I tried catching the cat. And as I was holding my arms up, he put his claws out. And as gravity pulled, he just ripped. And I have these four scars right here. It's funny we would never ever judge somebody because of a physical scar, but how often do we do it when spiritual scars are involved? Yep. I was at the Apple Store the other day, and a man walked out, and he just had burn marks all over him. And it's hard not to look at him, and you do, you know you're you're in a kind of a difficult spot because you want to make eye contact with him, but you don't want him to think that you're you know looking at him just because of that. And it's t- terrible. And we never judge a man because of a physical scar, but How often do we do it when somebody has a tattoo? You see, all that is is a scar. Many of you may not know, but my dad has tattoos. The pastor of your church has ink. Isn't that crazy? He's told us before, and I know many of you know this, but... Right here on his... Bi- he's got one that says GCW, so he's got his initials. And apparently back then you had to be like way tougher than now. It's like walking uphill in your, you know, snowshoes, both ways to school, whatever. Well, apparently it used to hurt a lot more to get tattoos. and He's got his initials, but he's got one letter written on his big toe and it's H. And he was going to spell the word hell out, but he couldn't take the pain of E-double uh, L. So he just has H on his big toe. So, man, he is a bad dude, but he didn't want to deal with the pain of that tattoo. It's pretty funny, but your pastor has ink. And, and let me just say, as, these, as these new build, this new building goes up and we begin to expand and we begin to see an influx of people come into our congregation, you don't think there's going to be one or two with a few piercings? You don't think that there's going to be one or two that come in with hair that we don't think is proper? One or two that come in and they might have tattoos all the way down their arm. You don't think that's going to happen? They're just scars. We don't judge people for physical scars, and yet we cast this condemning look. Oh, you can't be here. This is not the church for you. James says, don't look on the outward appearance, for Christ did not. You see, Matthew 22 says, Master, we know that thou art true and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of the man. Christ did not look on the outward appearance. I'm reminded when Samuel is given the duty of selecting the next king of Israel, and he goes to all of Jesse's sons, and many of you know where I'm talking about. He goes and he looks at each and every one of them, and Eliab steps out. And Eliab's the oldest one, he's the strongest one, he's got the look of a king. And Samuel says, surely the Lord's anointed is in front of me. Surely the Lord's anointed. You are it, Eliab. And God says, don't look on the outward, man. Then he keeps going down and each and every time, each and every person walks by and he's, well, Lord, this one doesn't look as good as Eliab, but is this the king? And, And God says, no. Remember, he then says, is there any more sons, Jesse? And Jesse's like, well... I don't even think this one's fit for a king. But I got a son out on the back of the desert. He's he's herding some sheep. I'll bring him in if you want to look at him but don't laugh at him. Don't don't laugh at him, Samuel. He's he's a little weak looking. He's ruddy. And you see as Daniel walks in front of Samuel, God gives Samuel a peace and he says, "This is him." You see, if we pick every person How is God supposed to do great things with those people? The Bible talks about the sinful woman to whom much is forgiven, the same lovest much. I wonder why Christianity has got so shallow. Is it because we only want those who aren't really that bad of sinners in Christianity? Maybe that's why they don't truly fully understand what God forgave them of is because in their minds they weren't forgiven of much. I'm just saying tonight, it is not our duty to be the sovereignty of God. And so many times we are that. In dealing with homosexuality, my friend, don't we hate the sinners too much? I mean, I didn't misspeak. I'm saying we hate the sinner, not the sin. Especially dealing with this one. Homosexuality. Is that not the worst? That's the ugliest, isn't it? And God loves the sinner. God just hates the sin. And we ought to have the heart of God and we ought to look at that man and say, you know what, you ought to repent, but God loves you and He forgave you just as much as He's forgiven me and to whom much is forgiven, you can love Him much more than I could ever know. Oh, my friend, as people come into this building with physical and spiritual scars, do you think it would be wise to look at them and say, God loves you? And I offer the right hand of fellowship to you because God loves you just like I ought to love you. You see... James here says, you ought not look at the outward man, but you ought to look on the inside. This past Saturday, we went door knocking. And we were knocking over behind Main Street in Joshua. And we were going down the street, and I had seen this trailer. And I couldn't quite tell if it was on this street or the street that we were knocking. But I went up to the porch anyhow. I walked up to the porch. And there were two young fellas sitting in a, in a car listening to some r- rap music, just pounding. And so I was like, oh, yeah. And I'm just kidding. I was not. I did not do that. I have no rhythm, nor do I have soul. But I do have good taste in music, so I would not like rap. And so as they're sitting there in their car and I'm walking up to the door, you know, me and my little tie. And I'm, oh, howdy, y'all. You know, they're like, they turn the car off. They get out of the car. And I began to talk to one of them. I said, hey man, my name's Andrew. I'm from uh, Joshua Baptist Church. And I'm just out in your neighborhood and I want to invite you to church. This guy had no less than eight eight piercings in his head. He had no less than probably a dozen tattoos that I could see just on the exposed parts of his body. And I was looking at him and I said, you know what? I would like to invite you to our church. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, I appreciate that, but... You know, I believe in God. I just don't really, you know, go to church. And I began to speak to him and I said, Okay, well, why why don't you go to church? Well, I just don't really think it's necessary to go to church. And I go, you're right. It kind of caught him off guard. And he said, I said, you know, honestly, it doesn't sound like you really don't want to go to church. It just sounds like it's not convenient to go to church. He's like, yeah, exactly. It's not convenient to go to church. I began to talk to him there, and I I said, you know what? It's your choice. I'll just leave this with you, read through this a little bit. You're exactly right on the fact that church does nothing to impress God. I don't go to church to impress God. I go to church because God loves me, and I want to obey Him. And I, I just looked at Him, and I said, you know what? If you go to church every day of your life, you can never go to heaven It's only found in a relationship with Jesus Christ and the love that he showed you on the cross and your acceptance of that. So I'll leave this with you as we talked a little bit. By the end of the conversation, he said, you know what? Do y'all have any kids programs? I was like, oh, do we? I began to tell him about how we have the trunker treat during the fall and I said we have tons of activities like this throughout the year. We have skating rink activities, we have trunker treats and and you know by the end of the conversation this fellow who doesn't look like a Baptist, this fellow who doesn't look fundamental or independent, this fellow who at first said, "I don't want to go to church." At the end of it said to me, "You know what? I might come. You know why? Just because I think my daughter needs to go. Maybe she can find some friends, maybe" I'm just saying today, may we not be scared off by people's outward appearance. For God doesn't look on the outward appearance. And I'm glad he doesn't. Because if truly God were looking on the outward appearance of each and every one of us, he'd be looking on the worst part of us. And that's our flesh. I'm thankful that God looks on the inner man and he looks at, now that we're saved, he looks at the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He looks at the new man and not the old man. And maybe instead of looking on the outward appearance of every person that walks in here, maybe we could just say, regardless of what they look like, God loves you. Maybe we could welcome them with open arms. Not only are we supposed to see the inner man and not the outer man, we're supposed to secondly see their future and not their past. We are to see their future and not their past. In this passage specifically... James is looking at this man and he says, this man who's accumulated this great wealth for himself, this man who has riches, this man who has things, he has rings, he has clothes, he walks in and you look at him like he's something special. And this man that just doesn't have as much, you look at him like he's a lesser human being. I'm thankful that God does not look at my past, He looks at my future. Because for each and every one of, this, one of us, it could be said, our past is pretty ugly. It doesn't matter how well I cleaned up before church, I've got skeletons in my closet. And I would probably say that everybody in this room has skeletons in their closet. Every one of us has something that nobody wants projected on these screens. Am I right? We all have things that we don't want shown to the other person sitting beside us. But see, God does not look at those things. He does not look at you when you were in your hell-raising days. He looks at you and says what you can be and not what you were. Take your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. I want to show you something that I find very, very unique. Acts chapter 11. You see, in verse 25, Acts chapter 11, what's gone on now is Paul has been saved. He's been converted from Saul. Many of us know what took place in Saul's life beforehand. He was the... Killer of the church, he was the persecutor. Uh, that's why Christ looks at him and says, "Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me?" It's hard for me to kick against the pricks, and y'all know that story and recall that story well. Paul was the assassin that had been hired to kill Christians that claimed the name of Christ, and now Saul has had a Damascus Road experience. Am I right? And he's knocked off his donkey. He says, "You know what? You're going to be saved now." And and Saul's been converted. Now, as Saul's converted, he begins to want to be a part of everything. But people tend to hold their hands up and say, I'm not sure about this. You you killed my cousin. I'm not sure I want you in my church. Look in verse 25. There was one man who took it upon himself to welcome Paul. In verse 25, the Bible says, Then departed Barnabas to Tarshish for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. This is very important. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Is it unique that the Bible shows a man's unconditional love for somebody who was not very lovely at the time And then it's very clear to say, and that's when they really first got called Christians. Barnabas shows love that nobody else was willing to show. You know what? It wasn't easy for Barnabas to do that. Barnabas probably knew somebody that Saul had consented unto their death. For all we know, Barnabas' aunt could have been killed by Paul. And now Barnabas is given this ministry to go seek Saul... Barnabas takes Saul, they they begin to study, they begin to minister. Paul becomes a great part of the ministry, and, and the Bible then says, and you know what? The first time they were ever called Christians was at Antioch. Let me just say if we don't love unconditionally the people that walk in this building, we have no business being called a Christian. Amen. Yes, sir. Amen. We are no more a Christian than a Hinduist priest. If we cannot love the people that walk in here regardless of who they are and where they've been. I'm thankful and I preach a sermon about the thief on the cross. As Christ is hanging on the cross. And he is literally looking at the effects of sin upon a man's life. He's looking at the condemnation of the sin. He's looking at the effects of the sin in the fact that he was dying at that moment. He's looking at sin incarnate right there in front of him. And he says, today... Thou shalt be with me in paradise. I wonder if Barabbas or the thief on the cross were to walk into our building, if we could say, you know what? Let me tell you about paradise. And I'm not saying that our church has a problem with this. And and technically, I don't really think we have a hard time extending a hand of fellowship. But I just wanted to preach a sermon tonight because I believe growth is, is on its way. And I believe that uh, I'm thankful for Christians that come who are already established in the faith and know the Word of God. And, and we've had additions here lately that are Christians that are from other healthy churches and they're coming and they're contributing. But let me tell you this, there might be some people coming in here that don't know the difference between God and Buddha. There might be some people in here that couldn't tell us the difference between Jesus and Jesus. And I want to tell you today, those people deserve just as much as a Brother Gerald and a Miss Kim Gerald, and just as much as a Sean and Christy O'Dell, and just as much as anybody in this building. They deserve to know the love of Christ for their lives. And it is not our duty to sit here and tell them uh, that that they're not good enough or that they're too ugly for God. It is our duty to share the love of God regardless of who they are and where they've been. How often we look on the past of Christians and we cannot get over it to see what they can become for God. Man, what could the woman at the well contribute? She, She was just a wicked, sinful woman. And she was the best soul winner in town when God got through with her. She brought everybody. She goes through the town. You come see a man who showed me everything that I've ever done. You come see him. Come on. And she brings everybody to Christ. I want to tell you today, you don't know what type of soul winners are out there lost and dying and on their way to hell. Did you know that in Gandhi's autobiography, he read the Gospels? And he considered converting to Christianity because... He thought that the principles in the Word of God could really help fix the diversity problems in India. He walks in one day to a Christian church and he he was going to talk to the minister about becoming a Christian and he was turned away by an usher that said, you go worship with your own people. You're not welcome here. And Gandhi says, if Christians have assigned differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. You see, if we look on the differences of men and who they are, and let me just tell you, in the color of their skin, it is no secret that we are predominantly a white church, is it not? It is no secret that we are Caucasian. I know when you get on this topic, it's a little sketchy. But let me just tell you, I look out in the audience and I see a lot of white folk. But did you know that a Hispanic man... A black man, an Indian man are no less welcome to hear the gospel of God than you. It is not our duty to look on the outward appearance of man. It is not our duty to look at who they were and where they've been. It is our duty to show them the love of God. For that is true ministry. That is pure religion. It is not our duty to judge. It is our duty to help and to bless. Finally, it is not our duty to see their past, but we're to look at their future. But finally... We are to see what they can get, and not what they can give. We are to see what they can get, and not what they can give. If you were sitting in this church in James chapter 2, and James writes this example of a man who walks in, and let me just call him, I'm going to assign this title to him, because you all understand it, he's a millionaire. Let me just, I know the Bible doesn't say that he's, worth millions but it's very clear to say that he's a rich man is it not he's got goodly apparel he's got good rings and and let me just say in our modern day vernacular he's a millionaire please don't take that too far I know the King James version of the Bible does not say that but for your help and my help may we just call this man a millionaire there's also another man and I know that the Bible does not call him homeless but please can you understand how that could be Uh, perceived he's a poor man he doesn't have much and James sets up this example how a poor man a homeless man or a rich man or a millionaire walk in and now you place yourself in this Baptist church that James is writing to you place yourself in the pew and you see these two men walk into your church we're in the middle of a building program are we not You think money's not getting tight? You think that we couldn't use an extra million dollars? Let me just say we could. And as this thing's going on and you see this poor man, this homeless man, he probably smells a little bit. He probably has body odor. He probably doesn't look clean. He's probably got an unshaven face. And he walks in. And then through the other entrance walks a millionaire. He's got good clothes. And we can tell by the fatness of his wallet, he's got good money. And we, can, we know who he is. We know he's got money. He probably owns a few car dealerships. Or he owns a couple gas wells. That guy. And he walks into this building. In the middle of a building program. Do you think that it would be valuable to have a millionaire in our congregation? Do you think it would be valuable to have somebody that come and just say, I want to pay off the whole building. That'd be nice. You see, what James is saying is, if you have a rich man come in, and you judge him on what he can give, instead of what he can get, you are far from what Christ wants for you. There's a rumor going around, and I've heard it, that Joshua Baptist Church, the reason we're doing so well financially, is just because we have a few millionaires in the church. We have several millionaires in the church, and that's why... That's why we can build. That's why we can do these things is because we have millionaires in the church. Let me just tell you, Cody Sears is far from being a millionaire. (laughs) Well, you're closer than I am, though, aren't you? (laughs) You I, I, I don't even know one millionaire, honestly, in our church. I might know one. We don't have a bunch of millionaires running around just ready to fling money at every building project and every ministry that we create. We don't run buses because it's completely comfortable and convenient for us to spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on diesel fuel just because we got money coming in the groves. You see, we don't have some tree planted somewhere that just sprouts up money. That is not our church. Our church is full of a bunch of people who just said, I'm going to obey God and the principles of God's Word, and I'm going to be a good steward with my money. And You see, Cody Sears contributes just as much as the rich man. But Cody is really broke. Just trust me, he's really, really broke. You see, we are not supposed to look at people, and God forbid if... If a rich man did walk in, that one more person would shake his hand than the yeah, poor man. That's right. That's good. Yeah. Amen. Because isn't it just a little bit sweeter to smell somebody who doesn't smell bad? Isn't it a little bit nicer to shake somebody's hand who's a little bit cleaner? But see, Christ didn't minister to the rich men, Christ struggled ministering to rich men. Don't you recall the rich young ruler comes up to Christ and he says, Oh, all these I have done for my youth. And Christ says, but one thing you're lacking. Go sell all that you have. You see, Christ's ministry was not to come minister to every rich man. Christianity is not a a religion of prosperity and money. Christianity is a ministry of helping wicked, hurting sinners. And that's who Christ came to help. That's who Christ came to minister to. John 4 and 9 and verse 10, talking about the woman at the well, says, "Uh, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest, drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Christ broke down racial barriers. He broke down religious barriers. All because the love of God does not see those things. You see, we ought not stand in judgment of other people because we look no better than them if we were honest with ourselves. It was not long ago, my dad and I went to Colorado. We went probably, I'd say, eight years ago. And I remember this trip like it was yesterday. It was my first time to ever get to hunt the elk. I'd been several times and, and I had watched my dad hunt. One time we went and I remember he missed an elk five times before he hit it. And so can you imagine, uh, my dad's a good shot. He, you know, he's pretty dead eye. Brother Jim would attest. He's seen he make some pretty phenomenal shots. And we're watching this big bull elk out there. And he says, boom, and the elk just stands there. Doesn't even know what went on. He uh, shoots out a shell, boom, missed him completely. The elk's still running around. They don't know what's going on. Jack's out the shell, boom, missed him again. The elk starts running to us. I'm like, he's trying to make it easier for you, dad. (laughs) Boom missed him again four straight times my dad missed an elk now deer are hard to hit They're only 120 pounds elk are a thousand pound animals It's almost like shooting a cow out there in the middle of the field and my dad missed him four times And by the fourth one I looked at him and I was too young to shoot and I was like dad. Can't you shoot? It's funny And I remember the first time that I ever got to go I had been too young all the other years, but the first time I ever got to go. I was so excited One thing that me and my dad always do before going on a big hunting trip is we go uh, get maybe some binoculars or we go gear up for the trip, you know. We go go get stuff. Even though we may not use any of this stuff, we go get it because we're hunting. And we're going to go to manly stores like Cabela's and Academy and Walmart (laughs) and end up buying camouflage from the boys' section because it's cheaper. We go to all these manly hunting stores, and, and it's awesome. The preparation to the trip is almost as good as the trip itself. We went to Cabela's this one particular year, and we both needed new binoculars. So we go in, and we're looking through them all, and we had cheaper binoculars, but we found some that were nice. Me and my dad were going to get two pairs, and so we got 10 by 50 binoculars, which are pretty big. I mean, you can see a, a flea on the back of Brother John right here. And he's got several, trust me. And, and we went and got these 10 by 50s. And we were so excited to go on this trip. And I remember the very first morning we drive up to this canyon where we knew the elk were. There's no less than 300 elk in this canyon. And we knew it. We get out of the car and we got to shut the doors real quietly. And we shut the door. And I remember as soon as we stepped out of the car, this is what we heard. <sighs> And that's the cow elk. And then we heard... (laughs) And that's the bull elk. And so we heard this several times. when we're walking up to the canyon. It's pitch black outside. And all we're hearing is... That was the bull elk. And man, it was so exciting. We were standing up on top of this canyon, uh, up on this ridge, and we're looking down into the canyon. We can just see these bodies moving. And we can see hundreds of them everywhere. And the cool thing is, this was the year I got to shoot. So I'm like, Dad, you can take a flying leap, man. I got the gun this year. I'm going to kill something. I'm so excited. And so we're hearing, "Ah." I'm not going to do it again. I'm just kidding. And we're so excited. We're looking down this valley and the sun's coming up. And as the sun rises, you can just begin to make out a little bit better what's going on. And it was too dark yet to see everything. And and our guide was sitting here and he's like looking. He couldn't see anything. And I'm looking through my binoculars. I go, there he is. There he is. I see a giant. It was about 270 yards away. I saw some horns, man. Look like a tree over there. I was like, Rudolph done escaped from the North Pole. He's standing on the other hill. We're going to shoot him. We're going to kill Rudolph. <laughs> and I was so excited because I look over there and I just see this giant elk. And our guide was like, yeah, that's a pretty big one. I'm like, dad, do you see how big that elk is? That is unreal. My dad says, I can't see a stupid thing. <laughs> I'm like, Well, that's your fault, brother. I'm about to shoot this booger. I didn't care at the time. And I'm looking over there and I ended up shooting at him. I missed him, which was totally depressing. But I got one later in the trip. We got back to the, the lodge that day and I was like, Dad, I could see that elk just fine. I was looking through my binoculars and, man, I could see everything. And we got to looking at his binoculars and his were 8x50s. And they had been stuck in a 10x50 box. And we paid for 10 by 50s but his vision had been limited because the the binoculars didn't zoom as much. So 270 yards away, I was counting the fleas on the back, and to him it looked like fleas on the (laughs) heel. And he couldn't see a thing. And and he he just put his binoculars down and left them on his chest, and I was watching the elk through my binoculars. He couldn't see anything. He literally never saw the elk I shot at. And very similar to that is how we are limited in our vision to what people are and what they can become. Yep. Amen. We stand there and we look at them as they enter the door and we might even snicker within ourselves and say, oh, they're a one-timer. We look at them and they say, boy, they've had a rough past. But truly, if we were to be able to look through God's vision, all He sees is a bunch of women at the well all he sees is a bunch of Saul's and a bunch of Paul's. So often we become the will of God for every yeah. sinner's life. And we dictate, oh, that person deserves to be saved. That person doesn't. That person's not good enough. But God died once and for all for everybody. Amen. Sure. And as people walk into this church, I want you to understand, while through our vision they look rough, While through our vision, their history might be rough. Through God's eyes, all He's seeing is the great miracle that they are and what they can become. I just want to admonish you, and as I said earlier, I don't think our church necessarily has a giant problem with this. I'm just saying, may we as people come in, shake the rich man's hand just as we shake the beggar's hand. May we extend fellowship to the man who's, been hurt by this world just as much as the person that owns this world. May we be able to step out and just say, Welcome, friend. Amen. For every Christian that's ever come to this church and joined this church, they always do it and say, What? Man, I just felt welcome. Had a man's Sunday. I just felt welcome at that church. I pray that nobody's ever left and not felt welcome. Hmm. Buildings coming. Growth is coming. And I just hope as growth comes, we can shake every man's hand knowing who they are in God's eyes.